It's great to be here this morning, to be able to open up the Word of God. One of the things I love about being in this church is how the truth of God's handled. And so it's a joy for me to have the opportunity to do that with you this morning. Uh, Last year when I was home, Pastor Justin and I were talking about one of the messages that he had preached. And in that message, he had quoted a verse from 3 John. And he said to me, Rob, when I was at the door, several people stopped and said to me, I didn't know that verse was in the Bible. Then he said, I got thinking about that. And it's like, I couldn't remember when I ever heard a message on 3 John. How would you like next August when you're home with us to preach on 3 John? So I said, love to do that. Looking forward to it. Well, ironically, we're in the midst of a sermon series entitled, Knowing God, the Trinity. We've heard some tremendous messages recently by a few different speakers. The ones by Justin stand out to me because of the titles, Learning the Trinity, Loving the Trinity, and I believe it's next week, it'll be Living the Trinity. And they've been powerful theological messages that strike at the heart of who God is and at our need as His children of understanding and knowing and living in accordance with who our God is. So why do I say it's ironic that in the midst of that series I'd be speaking on 3 John? Well, the main reason is that 3 John is the only book in the New Testament that does not mention the name of Jesus Christ. It also doesn't mention the name of the Holy Spirit. Like, wait a minute, is this even Bible? It also does not refer to God as our Father. It has three simple references to God using the English word in your Bibles, God. The Greek word in the Greek New Testament, Theos, which could be used for capital G, God, or it could be used for small letter God. Sort of a generic type of term. And when you think about that, it's like, okay, wow, how did this get into the Bible? There's one other reference that's uh, not an explicit reference, but an implicit. It calls the name that they were sent forth and they went out for the sake of the name. So we have God, 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 name. If you were to turn to Romans, you remember we just wrapped up Romans not too long ago. The first seven verses of Romans names Jesus Christ I don't know how many times. Names God as Father several times and the Holy Spirit just in the introduction to the book of Romans. Here we have a whole book that hardly even breathes the words in terms of our triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The references are as follows. We'll look at them later, but the writer talks to somebody about being uh, living in a manner worthy or doing something manner in a worthy of God. And then two other times it comes up in this verse. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil hasn't seen him. Like, really? Whoever does good is God. Whoever does evil hasn't seen God. That's, that's God in this epistle. One theologian that I read said this. 3 John is the least theological book in the whole Bible. 
And here we are this morning in the midst of deep theological messages talking about 3 John. The other interesting thing about 3 John is it's the shortest book in the whole of the Bible. It's been called by many commentators, it's a postcard that that the Apostle John wrote to a friend. So I went out and I got a postcard. Okay, everybody familiar with those? Florida, the Sunshine State. That was easy to find here in town. And I put Third John on the back of it. And I thought, wow. Wow, it really is a postcard. It's like this is font anybody could read and it all fits on this little postcard. That's Third John. So what's the point? I mean, why is this even in the Bible? Wouldn't you wonder? Like you have Romans. This incredible theology of the Gospel. 16 chapters. I don't know how many words. Thousands of words. Written to this church. And then you got 3 John. This friendly little note to another friend. Hardly mentions God. And it's right in there with all the rest of Scripture. And I think if you're a thinker, of any sort. You start asking yourself questions. Why? Like, what's it doing in there? And I'm hoping to answer some of those things this morning. Because 3 John teaches us about the concept of sending and supporting missionaries. It it answers a lot of important questions that Christians have asked and are still asking. Maybe you're asking as you sit there this morning. So where where does this practice come from? This sending missionaries around the world. Why do churches do this? Is this a relatively recent development, like in the last 300 years? Or is this something that's been going on for a while? And why should churches do this? Or maybe a little more personal. Why should our church do this? Why should members of Faith Bible Church be responsible for sending people to all places all around the world to preach the Gospel. Why is that your responsibility and mine as a member of Faith Bible Church? And if we all assume, look, we should do this, then how do we do it? How do we know how to do it? Well, as I began preparing this, and I was in China when I started Uh, preparing this message, immediately this feeling overwhelms me. Well, this is awkward! Justin just asked me to come into church and tell you guys what the Bible says about how you ought to deeply love and take care of missionaries. Wow, that's going to be a challenge. It seems a little self-serving. And then this thought came over my mind. You know, there are two churches on planet Earth that I feel comfortable doing this in. One is Calvary Baptist Church in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. It's where I went to seminary. Graduated from seminary there. Got hired on as a pastor. Pastored for ten years. Took hundreds of men to the mission field from that church. Was sent out from that church to the foreign field as a missionary. Those people know me. They know my good sides, my bad sides. They know me. 
I have a track record there. I've been tested in their presence. And they put their seal of approval on my family and sent us to the other side of the world to represent the Gospel. I feel comfortable going there and challenging them from any place in the Word of God because they're family. And then there's this church. This is our new family. As of a couple of years ago, when we moved across the street, so we had a place to stay when we came back from China, which we didn't have prior to that. This church was the place that God led us to come. And we have come here and we have been deeply loved and cared for and welcomed and felt like family right here. I don't feel like a a speaker coming from the outside preaching a message to some congregation. I feel like an insider standing up this morning to share from the Word of God with friends. And I can't think of any other church that I would feel comfortable with besides those two sharing this morning's message from 3 John. I think you'd understand, I think you'd all agree that we... We wear many hats in life. (laughs) You know, if you're a lady with us here this morning, um, not everyone is married, but if you are married, you wear a wife hat from time to time, I I hope. You wear a mom hat. You wear a disciplinarian hat. You wear a a hat for the game maker of the kids to get them happy and excited to do things. You, You wear a chef's hat many days of the week. Some of you wear a house manager hat. You have many different hats that you wear, and, and all of us do, and I do too. You know, I have a, a husband hat, I have a father hat, I have a carpenter hat. When I hang out with Mike Vitt, I get out my tools and play carpenter. So I have a carpenter hat. I have several different hats that we all wear in life. Two weeks ago, I had the great joy of going on vacation with my three grown children and their families. We don't get to see each other too much because we are on like three different continents and, and we just don't get to see each other too much. And it had been several years and we got a week together and I got to put on my dad hat. Not the disciplinarian one telling them what to do and how to do it and this, that and the other thing, but it was still a dad hat. It was kind of like a dad-friend hat. And I took long walks and had long talks. And one of the great joys there is I'm always going to be their dad. It was just an awesome time. But I also got to wear my grandpa hat with my nine grandchildren. Ten grandchildren. Two days ago, our tenth was born. Praise God. From whom all blessings flow. And I got to put my grandpa hat on. And I got to have these kids. I'd get in a big fluffy chair and two, three, four of them would plop on top of me and just sit there forever. I'm thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. It can't. Until heaven, it can't get any better than this. Well, yes, I also have a missionary hat. And for the last 14 to 15 years, I've been wearing that hat a lot. 
But before I had that hat, I had a pastor's hat. And what I'd like to ask you this morning, this is something you are going to have to do for me this morning. Please allow me, as I preach the Word of God, to take off my missionary cap and to put on my shepherd's hat and to speak to you from the heart of a shepherd, from the heart of a pastor. It's a gifting, it's a passion, and it's a responsibility. A responsibility to share the truth with God's flock. That's what I want to do this morning as a pastor. You have to allow me to do that. If you only eye me through a missions hat, you're going to have trouble listening this morning. I pray that you won't. I love this church. I pray that you listen to me as a pastor. I want to start by reading the whole book. Wow, how many times has Justin been able to say that? You'd pass out. I got the book here on my postcard, but I I want you to open your Bibles because I want your Bibles open for this. It's a short book, but it's a powerful, it's an important book. And if you're using a pew Bible, I I got bad news for you. There is no page number on 3 John in the pew Bible. Can you believe it? Like the editors of the ESV didn't even think it was important enough to put a page number. Okay, So you have to turn to page, I think it's 1024, and then go ahead a couple of pages, and you'll get to 3 John. 1026 had it had a number on it, and that's 3 John. I want to read that together to get our time started. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that, they may be, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write in pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. 
Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. What a warm, personal letter between two believers that God has preserved in His Word for us to be acquainted with, to read, to understand, to learn from. I want to give you a simple outline. If you're taking notes, you can do this. If not, just listen. It's, it's pretty simple. One of the easiest ways to outline this, this postcard of a note is to outline it around the three people that are mentioned in it. One of the things, if you are familiar with 1 John, which if you're not, you will be soon, because Pastor Justin is going to preach through 1 John uh, very soon. It's a tremendous theology of God. God is truth. God is love. It's just developed in a powerful way in 1 John. But there's no people mentioned in 1 John. Not one. And then we have 2 John. Another short letter. But there's no specific people mentioned in 2 John either. Just the elect lady and her children. Which could be a person. Could be a church. We don't know. But then you get to 3 John and there's three specific people mentioned here. Very personal. And you can outline the book around those. There's an introduction. And then there's Gaius. The one who provided hospitality. That's verses 1-8. through Gaius, the one who provided hospitality. Point number two could be the condemnation of Diotrephes. The one who refused hospitality. And then the third point, the third person, the commendation of Demetrius. He's the one who is in need of hospitality. So as you can already tell from a simple outline this book is about hospitality which we're a little confused on as americans i I believe it with all my heart and i i hope that you'll see from the word as i have as i've studied what god thinks about hospitality and how uh, utterly important it is to the work of the gospel i'd like to take a minute and sort of summarize the whole book for you just so that you can see the whole book it's not not long we just read it Uh, see it in a simple way So what's going on with this letter? Well, it seems that there were some itinerant preachers or missionaries that were sent out from a certain church where the elder was to go out on a a mission journey like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas went and the Apostle Paul and Silas went out on missionary journeys. These guys were sent from this church out on their missionary journey and on that journey they came across different towns, different places, And one of them was here where Gaius was part of a church. We don't know exactly what the part he played in the church, but he was part of a local church. And these men, these missionaries came to this place and Gaius didn't know them. They didn't know him, but they were sent from the elder. And Gaius opened his home, opened his heart. The men stayed in. Then they moved on. And they went out and and Gaius obviously helped them on to their next place, wherever that next place was. And we don't know how long they were out on their missionary journey. Could have been a month, could have been a year. We, we, We have no idea. But they were out on a missions journey, planting churches, preaching the gospel, strengthening brothers and sisters in Christ. Then they came back to their home church. Right? Isn't that what missionaries do? They come back and they report to the home church. And, and they stood up. Some of the brothers stood up in front of the church and reported on their journey. And one of the things they reported is, hey, we got to such and such a town 
And this guy, Gaius, opened up his home for us. Now, he didn't just open up his home for us. This guy loved us deeply in the truth. He was in love with the truth of the Word of God. He was in love with practicing the truth. And so they stood up in front of this church and gave testimony to a guy that probably not too many people in that particular church knew personally, maybe had heard of him in the past, because he was probably led to the Lord by the elder who calls him my child. I just love it when my children Spiritual children are walking in the truth. So, the elder, John, gets this testimony from the missionaries, and he says, oh man, i got to write a postcard to, to Gaius. i, I just got to let him know how encouraged I am to hear that he is continuing to practice the truth that I had the great privilege to lead him to some years prior. So he starts writing this thing. And it starts off, it's, it's very powerful, very personal. He says, I love you. I mean, that's pretty personal. And he, he has basically two purposes in this little short note. He wants to encourage Gaius, praise Gaius for the lifestyle that he's living. I'll call him Gaius and I'll call him Gaius. Sorry. It'll come and go. Just as easy as that. He wanted to encourage him in this lifestyle, this Christian lifestyle that he was living. And he also wanted to urge him to do it even more. The Apostle Paul does similar things when he writes to 1 Thessalonians and and other places. Man, you guys really know how to love one another. It's awesome, Paul would say. Look, I want to challenge you. Increase your love for one another. So he's not chastising him and saying, well, you guys don't know how to do it. Just like Paul, John saying, you are doing it, man. This is awesome. Do it more. Keep doing it. And so, at some point, after those missionaries shared their uh, testimony about Gaius, they went out on another missions journey. And this time, they have Demetrius with them. He seems to be the one that's sort of carrying the postcard. But he's with these other missionaries, probably the same, same missionaries. And they end up going to Gaius again. So in this note is, hey, make sure you take care of the guys that are there and send them on their way. So this is the second round. These guys are back again. They, hey, I want to stay at Gaius' house, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, we could go somewhere different, but I think I want to stay at that guy's house. And they go to the same house. And since Gaius, Gaius doesn't know Demetrius because he comes from the elder's church. Uh, The elder introduces him and says, look, this guy's got character. This guy's living by the truth just like you are. So, you know, receive him and send these brothers on their way in a manner worthy of the gospel. I mean, that's basically the gist of the letter. There's a negative in there. Yeah, look, I sent you a letter before you never got it. Uh, sent it to the church, Demetrius, who likes to be first, <laughs> likes everybody to think he's God, sort of. The only other place in Scripture that that's called, that term of being first is used is for Jesus as the preeminent one in Colossians. Well, this guy thought he was the preeminent one in the church, and he ripped up John's first postcard, thought, you know, we don't need to listen to that guy. And, and then not only did he rip up the postcard, he 
started threatening people. You let those missionaries in your home, I'm going to kick you out of this church. Like, wow, he's a pleasant guy to have as a leader. I don't know how they tolerated that, but they did. And I've been in enough churches to know people still do. Just sit there and tolerate people telling you what to do, bossing you around, commanding you as their spiritual leader. I'm glad that doesn't happen here. (laughs) Our pastors unfold the Word of God as our authority to follow. Do they not? And that's the way Gaius was. So let's start looking at it in a little more detail. Some of the background, the author. I've been calling him the elder because guess what? That's all it says. The elder to Gaius. Who on earth is the elder? He didn't even name himself. Well, guess what? Second John, he says, the elder to the, la- to the lady at. Didn't name himself. First John doesn't name himself. Gospel of John doesn't name himself. I think one of the reasons he doesn't name himself is humility. But really, the greater reason is he didn't need to. Everybody knew the Apostle John at this point. This is at the end of the first century. He's the last man standing. He's the old man. He's the last apostle. The last authority from Jesus Christ between Jesus Christ and the people was the Apostle John. When you said the elder... Everybody knew who you were talking about. And so there was really no need to introduce himself. The elder, you know, the Apostle John. Everybody knew who the elder was. And so he sends, he's the sender of the letter. This has been widely held throughout church history that it's the Apostle John, as well as First and Second and Gospel of John, and the Revelation. All written in the last decade of the first century as an old man. He's writing into a situation, and you've heard Justin talk about this in different ways, but the New Testament situation is not the American situation. The New Testament situation, in the topic of what we're going to talk about today, we're speaking about hospitality. Gaius showed hospitality. Diotrephes refused hospitality. Demetrius needed hospitality. What's the big deal about hospitality? I like to have a party every once in a while and have some friends over. I'm hospitable. Well, let's go back to the first century for a minute. When people were traveling in the first century, they were going from, we'll say country to country, but there were no borders. Some of the liberals today are thinking, ah, that's the way it should be. Shouldn't be any borders. Yeah, well, look at it again. There were no borders because the Roman emperor controlled it all. That's where we're headed, right? But as you went place to place, you went to places where you didn't know people. And there was no Marriott to crash in for the night. No Hyatt. Sit by the pool. Sip something and head on the way the next day. There were some inns available, but you don't want to go there. Listen to this. I wrote it down. Innkeepers. This is a lost man talking about the innkeepers of the day. 
They're pirates who hold their guests for ransom before they allow them to escape. That's the way innkeepers were viewed in the first century. Because hospitality was so important, not just in Christianity, in society, it was necessary that for someone to charge somebody to get a good night's sleep in this dumpy place of theirs, he's a pirate! He's holding those people for ransom. But what do you do when you go someplace and you don't know anybody? If you don't get accepted in, then you remain a stranger in that town. If you remain a stranger in that town, you are a threat to the locals in that town. Which means you probably won't get out of town alive. That's first century. It's a big deal. Such a big deal that even in secular times, if you had a a great-great-great-great-grandfather who had some family that lived in such and such a place and you were going there to do business, you would get this seal from the governor that you're part of that family. And you'd go up to these people, you've never met them before, and you'd go, we have the same great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Can I stay here tonight? Basically, you're a total stranger. And you were dependent on that person going, okay, letting a total stranger into their home, into their family. Hospitality was essential in the New Testament period. Let me say this. Hospitality is still essential in the church. Most of the world still knows that and still lives that. The part of the world that I live in most of the time understands that and lives that way. It's a lesson you and I hear this morning in this church building with these nice pews. We really need to learn what it is that God's talking about when He talks about hospitality. Because it's one of the one another's. We're studying that in our seminars together. This morning we talked about love one another. Awesome background to what we're talking about this morning. But 1 Peter 4.9 says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now this is, he's talking to Christians. Open your home, open your heart, and please do it without complaining. Romans 12.13, share with the Lord's people who have need. Practice hospitality. I've already said this, but there were no church buildings in the first century. So when John wrote this postcard, there weren't church buildings in Ephesus and and all those other places. We hear the seven churches in Asia, and we immediately think of, ah. No, 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 he's not talking about buildings. He's talking about people. People who met in their homes. Why did they meet in their homes? Because the home was central to everything that happened. You want to evangelize? You had people into your home to evangelize. You want to disciple and teach and preach? You invited people into your home to disciple, preach. You want to have the Lord's Supper with a local group of believers that mates up a local church? They do it in somebody's home. You worship in somebody's home. You sing hymns in somebody's home. That's what we do where I live most of the time. We meet in homes. 
And most, not all, but most believers in that country do the same. They meet in homes. And that totally changes the way you view hospitality. If this were a home and there were almost 200 people here, we'd have 200 pairs of shoes piled at the door. Have fun finding yours on the way out. That's what a house church looks like in many parts of the world. It's just a different setting. It's a much more intimate setting. It is central to everything. It is something we need to recapture in America. I tell you the truth. As a missionary who travels more than he wishes when he's home in America, I stay in more hotels than I do homes. The truth. That's a little cold when you come from a culture like we minister in. Like, are they going to send me the bulletin via text message? How is this all going to get done? I'm not saying it's evil to be in a hotel. I'm not saying that. It's just we don't even think about it. And so the elder, who we believe is the Apostle John, writes this letter and says, To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Who is this guy? Wow, I wish I could tell you. We don't know. Fortunately, it's not important to the story that we know who he is, where he's from, what his wife's name is. That's not important to the truth that God's teaching here. But there's four other references to Gaius in the New Testament, and probably none of them are this guy. Does it matter? No. What matters is that we understand why he's here in this place. Why he is viewed as a beloved man. Now, John could be speaking theologically here. I don't think that's the first thing. He, I don't think he's just saying, oh, God loves you. He might be. I think this is like, everybody loves you. <laughs> The beloved Gaius, man, everybody who ever says anything about this guy has something good to say about him. That he's living in the truth. He's walking in the truth. He's loving others in the truth. And John said, I just love that about you. And that's how he finishes verse 1. I love you in the truth. He may be a church leader. He may not be a church leader. He's a faithful Christian. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of influence. He's a man of respect. No question about it. And John has given him an expression of his own love, maybe God's love, certainly the love of the Christian community for the way this man lives his life. Wouldn't you like people to be saying that about you? Anybody here not want to be like Gaius? <laughs> Where all the Christians around you recognize you love the truth. You live the truth. Which means you love God and you love God's children. 
And it just flows out of who you are. I don't know if you noticed when we read through this short letter, the word truth, did it stand out at all to you? I didn't try to overemphasize it, but in this very, very short letter, seven different ways truth is talked about. You go back to 2 John, truth is talked about. You go back to 1 John, truth and love is talked about. I, I think it's the heartbeat of the Apostle John who was given the nickname the Apostle of Love. You remember, he used to be the Son of Thunder. What does that tell you about his character? He ends up the Apostle of Love. Not fearful to speak the truth and to correct, but just overflowing with the love of Christ. And he is the one that has written this to Gaius. And he is the one who prays for him in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all goes well with you, and that you may be in good health as it is well with your soul. Uh, this is a third John is the most similar New Testament letter to secular letters of the day. The introduction, a secular guy would say, not quite the same way he would say it. But, you know, oh, I hope your health is good. I mean, these are just common things that you would say to people that you care about. But because he's a Christian and he's talking to a Christian, we interpret a little bit deeper than that. He's praying for him that his health and all other areas of his life would be equal to his spiritual life. Would prosper like his spiritual life prospers. Now, you could take this verse out of context like Oral Roberts did many years ago and build a whole ministry on God wants you healthy and prosperous. I mean, we're fighting that today in a huge way in America. The prosperity gospel. This is their verse. Verse 2. Oh, what I would love to do is to be able to be in some of those churches and say, let's look at this verse one more time. Okay? Here's what, God, here's what John is praying for you this morning. John is praying that God will make your health on the same level as your spiritual life. Are you nervous? <laughs> How many Christians would stop breathing? Right there on the spot. If God answered that question, it would be like... <clears throat> it's not about being rich. It's not about having everything. It's about, wow, this guy has a spiritual life that's prosperous, that's successful, that's meaningful because he's walking in the truth. Gaius, I hope your health is as good as your spirit. That's a good prayer. We should be thinking that way, praying that way for one another. Because this man's life was one of truth. Look at verse 3 as he gives the reason. This is why I pray this way, because I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, or that you're walking in the truth is the idea. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That my children believe the truth, doctrine, and live the truth, deeds. And I guarantee you, I can speak for Justin, for Phil, for Andrew, for Mitch, 
And for Bill, didn't get permission, but I guarantee you I can say this. Nothing thrills their hearts more than to have someone that they have had the great opportunity to point to Jesus Christ, come to Christ, continue to be discipled, and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't get any better for a pastor than that right there. And that's what John is saying. And so those four verses are an introduction that show us very clearly how immersed this man that John is writing to is in the truth. So I need to ask this question this morning, and then we're going to look at a couple of simple applications. So what was it about Gaius and the way he was living that so vividly showed that his life was characterized by truth? What did this man do that caused the Apostle John to say what he said about his life? Well, the answer might surprise you. You might have already guessed it. It had to do with how he treated missionaries. Now, is that the only thing that gained his reputation? Probably not. But it is the only thing that God the Holy Spirit put on the Apostle John's heart to write and then preserve in this postcard for you and I to learn from this morning. It's the only thing that Gaius has done that has brought about this reputation in his life before the Apostle uh, Apostle John. And that is that he loved and cared for strangers. I didn't say missionaries are strange, although I have said that before in the past. But they are strangers. They are strangers, right? When, when, when you meet a missionary, he's a stranger to you, unless he's your son and got sent out from your church and your home. You know, I met the Bancrofts a few weeks ago when they were here. He was a stranger to me. That's, that's how it starts. But for Gaius, he opened his home to these strangers. Not just gave them a pillow for their head or some food. He met every need that they had while they were there, including protection as a stranger in that village, in that town. It speaks volumes about his heart. So let's read. We're going to spend the rest of our time, which is not a long time, on verses 5 through 8. We're not going to go through the whole epistle, but the heart of the body of this epistle is in verses 5 through 8. So if you would, let me read it, and then we'll just make a couple of statements. Beloved, again, four times Paul, uh, John calls him beloved. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your work, all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers of the truth. So I think there's a couple of things that we can take home from this passage today that would be important to us as members of faith Bible Church. 
we need to learn from this passage how we personally, how we individually, personally, and how we corporately, together, as a local church. So how we personally and how we corporately, as a local church, care for our missionaries. There's some clear lessons here that we need to be living out the truth as a Christian in a way that is equal to the truth of the Gospel. I'll give you a phrase to remember. Faithfulness to the truth compels us to care for our missionaries. Seriously, that's what John's saying here. That's what God's saying here. Faithfulness to the truth. What does that look like? Well, it may look like a lot of things. But in this case, isolated in this whole epistle, here's what it looks like. Taking care and deeply loving itinerant preachers, which are missionaries who go from town to town, place to place, taking the Gospel for the sake of the name. So what does that look like? It's easy to say. What what does it look like? What are some practical things from this passage that will help us as faithful believers to the truth to live this out? First one's this. When they're with us, speaking of the missionaries, we need to serve them. We. We as a local body. We as in me. We as in you. When they are in our midst, we need to serve them. Look at at verse 5 again. Beloved, it's a faithful thing. It's a loyal thing that you are doing in all of your work for these brothers. Strangers as they are. This is an incredible thing you're doing, God says. As you love these strangers by showing them hospitality. But listen to me. To do this involves risk. Put yourself back in the first century for a minute. You think about opening your home to a stranger in the first century. You're not quite sure who you're opening your home to. But it's what you do. And there's a lot of risk in it. There's a lot of danger in it. Gaius was putting his own reputation on the line to vouch for someone he didn't even know. It's risky business. And if you don't think so, you could go back to 2 John. You don't need to go there. I'll read it for you. 2 John's about hospitality too, but in the other direction. Like, be careful who you open your home to. That's 2 John. 3 John is, praise the Lord, you open your home to the brothers. 2 John is, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. If anyone like this comes to your house, do not take them in. Do not show them hospitality. Anyone who welcomes them and shows them hospitality shares in their wicked work. Wow! Okay, so the same author has sent out this huge caution on who you let into your house, and yet we get to 3 John, and it's this is what makes this man so beloved by the whole Christian community, by God, and by John himself. 
In 2016, I had a tremendous privilege and joy to be able to travel through China with three Chinese pastors that are involved in our ministry over there. The reason we went out is because we have been training pastors all over China for many years, and we wanted to get out and get to their hometown and visit with them, see how they're doing, and encourage them in the truth. Encourage them to keep on keeping on. So this was a great adventure. This was a big undertaking. We traveled for a month. So four guys traveled for a month throughout the land of China. We went place to place to place, and we lived in lots of different situations. But everywhere we went, we were strangers. Me as a foreigner, they, they knew of me. Some of them had met me at a graduation service. That was about it, because we used teachers from home. The pastors that were with me, they may or may not have met. And if anybody in the church met them, it was the pastor who knew us. Nobody else knew us. We were strangers to the congregations everywhere we went. And everywhere we went, homes from strangers were opened up to us. And we were brought into their home and we were fed. And we were given a place to sleep. And we were prayed for. And we got around the Word of God together. And we were sent out and, and many places we went, we got to go see the, the greatest thing in their area. They wanted to show us the wonderful part of their part of China. So I got to see snow-capped mountains, rainforests, deserts. I mean, I got to see everything. I've seen more of China than I have of America because of these people who risked it all to let a foreigner in their home. They go to jail for that. It's against the law. They opened up their home. They ministered to us. One person owned a hotel, smuggled us into their hotel that we could stay there because it was like a one-star hotel which is an illegal place for a foreigner to stay. They jeopardized their future to be hospitable to strangers. And I walked away from that month with a lot of Blessings. But I walked away from that month thinking, wow, they understand what John is talking about here. They get it. They understand how important, how essential it is to open your life and treat a stranger like a VIP. That's how I felt. Why would you do that? Why would you treat a stranger that way? Why would you serve a stranger that way? Why would you send out a stranger that way? What what on earth would make somebody do that? But the truth. We're in this together. We don't know each other. But we're in it together. We're in the truth of the Gospel. And we're living that out. And they went through heavy risk for us to be part of their lives and for them to be part of ours. So it's, it's risky business. It also involves sacrifice. This might be where we put the brakes on here in America. I'm not, I'm not sure. can't speak for your heart. Putting someone up in your home involves sacrifice if it's a stranger. 
I had the great joy, my wife and I, in 2009, my wife got cancer. We were in China. She had surgery in China, but we had to leave China to get treatment, chemo and radiation and so forth. And we didn't have a house to come back to. We had sold our home, sold everything. We had nothing to come back to. And I was like, we had no doctor either. And then out of the blue, this couple gets a hold of us and they connect us to a doctor. And then they said this to us, come home, you can live with us. And I was like, do they have a clue what they're getting into here? Like, this is a very hard time in our life. We don't know how long this is going to last. Are you, please, we have a room in our home. Please, come move in. And I thought to myself, I wonder what, what, the, wonder what the conversation was like. Sweetheart, I, I think we should invite him to stay. You do? <laughs> okay, that's a Christian thing to do. Uh, we're not going to have any privacy, but okay, it's a Christian thing to do. And like, how long are they going to be here? I don't know. I've never had cancer. I don't know what the treatment is. So it'll be a while. Okay. You know, I don't know what the conversation was like, but they came to the conclusion to invite us into their home. And although we knew each other by name, we were strangers. And although they probably thought they had us for three months, they had us for eight months. And although we cried when we left, and they cried when we left, I think part of their tears was joy. Because they got their house back. But unfortunately, God has a sense of humor, and I got cancer, and we were back in a month for another five months. So they got us for a very long time. Here's the point of the story. They sacrificed huge. Their own personal lifestyle. We all have one, don't we? I do this at 9. I do this at 10. I'm at work from here to here. This is how I like my dinner. This is... Well, all that goes out the window. And that's okay for a weekend. Is it okay for a year and a half? That's hospitality. That's biblical hospitality. That's how strangers become friends. We are deep friends with those people today because they so deeply loved and cared for us in a very, very hard time. That's what John's talking about, Gaius did. And that's what we need to do individually as church members and corporately as a local church. If we're going to live out the truth, our pastor preaches it every week. He doesn't stop his preaching without challenging us to live what we just learned about the truth. Well, if we're going to do that in a way that pleases God, this is one of the things that's going to be a part of our lives as Christians. So when they're home, we need to serve them quickly. When they leave us, we need to partner with them. So John praises Gaius for what he does, what he was doing, but he is also prodding him to do more. Hey, these guys might be back again. Ah! Man, I hope not. Yeah, they might be back again. I want to encourage you to partner with them for the long haul. Verse 6. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. 
you will do well is an idiom that we would translate in English a little clearer than that. Please. <laughs> That's the idea. Please. You've done tremendous ministry in their life. Please don't let it stop there. Please send them on their journey. Which meant that phrase, send them on their journey, is used several times in Scripture. It's translated differently, but it's used nine times in the missionary context. Let me give you one of them. Titus 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Diligently help them. That's the same phrase. Send them on their way. Diligently help them so that nothing is lacking. That's the idea. That's what we need to do individually. That's what we need to do as a local church. That's what our reputation as faith Bible church in this community needs to be. Is that we are people that love their missionaries, though they're strangers to us, though we hardly ever see them. Unfortunately, you could see me more than most, but we love them. And we testify to the truth that we spiritually support them. We pray for them. We physically support them. We provide material needs for them. We financially support them. We fund their ministry. They wouldn't be wherever they are doing whatever they're doing if we didn't. And so we do. And this is a privilege, but it's, it's, it's an obligation. Jump down to verse 8 for a minute. Therefore we, the church, John includes himself, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. We need to support this. We as a church need to get on board with this. How do we do it? The answer is right there in the text. In a way, in a manner that's worthy of God. What does that mean? Do it the way God would do it if He were doing it. So God sent His Son. Did He abandon Him? Or did He walk with Him through the whole journey? God sent out His apostles. Did He abandon them? Or did we go, He go with them through the whole journey? Do it in a manner worthy of God. Do it in a way that represents these people are representing God for us in a place that we can't go. Many of us will never go to those places. Last thing, and we'll wrap it up. Why should we do this? And let me just give you three points because we're running out of time. From verse 7, three powerful reasons why you and I should be doing this. Number one, because they are doing what they are doing for the glory of God. Now, if there's a missionary out there who's not doing it for that reason, you should cut their support. But if they are out there for the sake of the name, then they are doing it for the glory of God. You remember Justin preached not too long ago from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And he pointed out the Trinity from that passage. And I was blew my mind. Go in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here John, the last standing apostle, who was present when Jesus gave the commission, says these people go forth for the sake of the name. 
They're going forth for the sake of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a reason to support them. That's a reason to love them. That's a reason to get behind them. Second reason is they're not going to get help from non-believers. These men didn't accept any money from the Gentiles. There were plenty of preachers around in the early church days that were out making money. There's plenty of preachers today that are out making money. John says, preachers who are doing this for the glory of God have no place else to get their support. In other words, the federal government isn't going to pay a missionary's way to another country. Now, our federal government may pay a lot of stuff that they shouldn't, but it ain't going to pay for a missionary to go anywhere. And what John's saying is, if you don't, and if we don't, then who will? If this is something that God, Jesus said, the Father has sent me, and I am sending you. If this is something Jesus is doing, sending people around the world with the Gospel, then you and I ought to be on board with that because they're not going to get their support from the world. And the third thing is we get to be a part of what they're doing. Verse 8, we ought to support these people so that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Is that not amazing? That God credits to your account as a supporter of a missionary in Argentina or Brazil or Cambodia or the Czech Republic or Kenya or Romania or Miami or wherever else our missionaries are, China, that what they're doing at the places where they are is getting credited to your account when you live like Gaius lived. You may never get there. But as you minister to them, the credit comes to your account. And in one sense, you get to go places that missionaries don't get to go. I go to China. I don't get to go to Argentina too much. I don't get to go to some of these other places too much. But everybody here who's behind those people that are doing that get to go there. Your heart is there. Your wallet is there. Your love is there. And God takes notice of what you do. Okay. I went over time. Justin's going to praise me for that because it makes him look good. If you'll allow me one more minute to take off my pastor's hat and put on my missionary cap. Lee and I are so grateful for your support, for your love, for your care. It's hard for us to express. We absolutely feel like family here. I have a hard time as a missionary this morning exhorting you to do better. But here's the truth. I don't know every individual. I know what, what you're doing together. But I don't know your heart. God does. So can I at least challenge you in this area that your heart would be like Gaius. Not towards the Clarks. Towards your missionaries, the Bancrofts and the Smiths and all the other ones that you support. That they wouldn't be a name on the back of the prayer sheet. That they wouldn't remain strangers. 
but that in the truth they would be loved and they would become friends for life. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You for this challenge from 3 John for every one of us. Lord, I need to be involved in missions, not just being on the mission field, but praying for other missionaries and supporting other missionaries. And This is true for all of us. God, give us a love for this work that You've called preachers of the Gospel to do. And may we do it without complaining. May we do it with great joy. And may we do it for the glory of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.